1966, John Lennon created a huge stir in our world when he was quoted by the journalist Maureen Cleave, who was working for the London Evening Standard, when Lennon said, the Beatles are more popular than Jesus. It was published that March without much of any controversy in London. But when it was reprinted in the American teen magazine, Datebook, on July 29th, the quote set off an international uproar. Many were scandalized by Lennon's arrogance. He would later be murdered outside his Manhattan apartment in 1980 by a man who was incensed and angry by his remark about the popularity of the Beatles compared to Jesus. As history played out, Lennon's ride on top was short-lived. And now his career and his life has been largely relegated to the back of our minds, reduced to nothing more than soundtracks for commercials or movies. But in comparison, Jesus' popularity continues to grow with each passing year. People have been talking about Jesus for over 2,000 years, and it doesn't seem to be slowing down at all. Today, you can buy a book entitled, What Jesus Ate, in case you wanted to know of the long hidden secrets of the Messiah's diet. You can purchase today flip-flops with the words, Jesus loves you on the soles, so when you walk on the beach, you can be a gospel presence. Or my favorite, you can buy Jesus-themed pet clothing with a dog shirt that says, Jesus roughs me, or a Jesus fills my dog bowl. Honestly, I have no idea what either of those things mean. But Jesus is still popular in this world. Jesus is even more popular with people who aren't Christians, from the Dalai Lama, who called Jesus an enlightened person, to the Hindu leader, Gandhi, who said the gentle figure of Christ, so patient, so kind, so loving, so full of forgiveness, that he taught his followers not to retaliate when abused or struck, but to turn the other cheek. I thought it was a beautiful example of the perfect man. Even the Quran refers to Jesus as a prophet and a messenger of God. These leaders seem to like Jesus. And in the gospel accounts, Jesus is seen time and again encountering people who seem to like him, respect him, appreciate him, and even approve of some of the things he says. And then Jesus turns around and tells them that they're not his disciples. They're missing something. Faith. And I want to be blunt this morning, friends. You're not a Christian just because you like Jesus. Being a Christian means that you believe in him, that you have faith in him for salvation, that you understand Jesus to be the only way for salvation. Understanding that you're spiritually poor, needing of forgiveness and spiritual sight to see who Jesus is and why he came to earth. And so this morning, we're going to continue our study through the Gospel of Luke. If you haven't turned there, turn to Luke chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 14 through 30. And here's the main idea, it should be on the screen, of, of what the, this passage is talking about. Jesus, our Messiah, proclaims his mission to bring good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and sight to the blind. And, and what we find here is that Jesus comes to his hometown and has this explosive meeting that will result in his expulsion from Nazareth. So there's three points that I want to cover in this section, his reception his reflection, and his rejection. 
So first, his reception, verses 14 and 15. When we come to this section of Luke's gospel, Jesus has been riding this wave of power and popularity. And Luke could have devoted more time chronicling Jesus' initial success in Galilee, but all we get is verses 14 and 15. He says, And Jesus returned the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And the reason why Luke is brief here is because he wants to be clear that Jesus' infamous Nazareth experience reveals what the gospel is and demands and why many people reject it and why some receive it. See, on a popular level at this point, right now, Jesus is the man. On the surface, you might say that, that things could not go any better for him when he strolls into Nazareth. And yet within 15 verses, we'll see Jesus is going to be rushed out of the synagogue and almost hurled off a cliff. And isn't that the pattern of following God? Right? You're, you're number one one moment and relegated to the dust heap the next. And Jesus comes into his hometown and, and people are talking. So he was raised in Nazareth, son of a carpenter, the northern part of Israel that surrounded the Sea of Galilee. And, and they knew him and they're hearing about him now. And so Jesus comes back to what is familiar. He, he then attends the service at the synagogue, as was his custom, but this won't be a normal service. So that was his reception, a quick point. Number two, his reflection. And he says in verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. You know, imagine coming one Sunday, only to discover the visiting preacher is Jesus. Well, that happened every week in the synagogue in Nazareth. And what did the synagogue worship look like? I was curious about this, did a little study this week. We can trace the general flow of a service by looking at Jewish text, Jewish text and there would be a singing from Psalm 145 through 150, followed by uh, a response to hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then they would walk through the benedictions. There's 18 of those that were recited aloud in succession. Then came a reading of scripture, and an officer would go to the Holy Ark, took out the Torah scroll, removed its cloth covering, opened it to its designated place, and placed it on the table where it was read by various attenders. And the Torah was then returned to the Ark, and a portion from the prophets was, was to be read. And this was followed then by the sermon. And then the service was closed with the benediction with the people pronouncing amen at, at each of the divisions. And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And this was, this was what the service looked like. And so we come to this point in, in, in Luke's gospel of, of reading from the prophets. And so it, it's very likely, we're not sure though, that, that Jesus was asking for the portion from Luke or from the prophet Isaiah 61. And so look at verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah had written this prophecy centuries earlier, 
looking forward to the coming Messiah. And here is the Messiah in their midst, standing up in the synagogue that Saturday, reading this prophecy to the people of his hometown. But he leaves out the, the last line of the verse in Isaiah 61, verse 2. Right after it says to proclaim the year of the Lord, Isaiah continues and says, and the day of vengeance of our God. He leaves that off. And I bet that got their attention. All, I'm sure, were, were silent and motionless. And Jesus is saying two things here. First, the consolation of Israel promised long before by Isaiah found its ultimate expression in Jesus and his message. And the second thing that he's communicating is that while the day of vengeance of our God would come, it was not being fulfilled this day. What was being fulfilled that day was the year, the, the season of the Lord's favor. So Jesus' first coming was, was favor. His second coming that we're waiting for was vengeance on God's enemies. And then in verse 20 here, Luke says, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You know, when I first read those verses, I imagined it from the Western mind. Jesus going to the front of the congregation like I did this morning, standing to the pulpit to read and then when he was finished, turning and handing the scroll back to the, the attendant and going to sit down. We might imagine that way because we naturally filter things through our own culture, our own history. But that's not what happened in the Jewish synagogue. Everyone would stand for the reading of the scriptures, but the, the sermon wasn't given from a pulpit. The preacher would stand to read and then sit down at the front, and his hearers would sit at his feet, and then he would explain what he read. Perhaps when I'm old, we will switch to that. Well, let's break down what Jesus says here to the congregation, because this will eventually turn the crowd from pleasant to angry. So he reads from Isaiah 61, and he gives four categories of people that Christ came to save. So look back at verse 18 again. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus was anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. The word poor can cover poverty physically, but also spiritually and morally. And Jesus came to the least of these, but the financially poor usually see their needs more clearly than the financially rich, who struggle to see any poverty in their lives. Often the physically poor are more open to hear the good news because they know they need help. They see their desperateness in their life. And like mine or the second one, captives has a spiritual application because the word technically means prisoners of war. Captives would be given freedom. Freedom means a release, uh, a cancellation of bondage. Last month, uh, let's see, is it September? Yes, last month, we refinanced our home. The rates kept dropping, so we thought it was a good time. So we did the work of Lots of paperwork, lots of reading, lots of signing, and, and, and refinance their home. And a few weeks later, I, I walked to the mailbox, and I'm coming back, and I open a letter from our, our uh, mortgage company. And, and I didn't read who it was from. And as I read, it says, uh, your mortgage has been paid in full. And my initial thought right away was like, sweet. How did this happen? Like, my mortgage is taken care of. Seriously. 
except that it was my last lender telling me that it's paid in full there, it's now moved to my new lender. And when we come to the word liberty, it means cancellation. And I thought, what if someone forgave my mortgage? I mean, think about it. How would you respond, right, if that was true? If I got the letter, and I have all these years ahead of me of paying monthly to pay off my house, and I get a letter saying, it's, it's done. It's forgiven. The burden's gone. The house is yours. How would you respond? See, friends, the cancellation of our sin for us is much greater than a 30-year mortgage. What Christ has forgiven of a Christian far outweighs a 30-year mortgage. And we should never grow tired of rehearsing what Christ has done for us on the cross. The burden is lifted, and it should continue to amaze us. You see, the third description here is that of recovering sight of the blind. And of course, through Jesus' ministry, he not only did this with physical eyesight, but spiritual eyesight. Matthew Henry said, he came not only by the word of his gospel to bring light to them that sat in the dark, but by the power of his grace to give sight to them that were blind. And then the last description he says is the oppressed. And they have the root idea that they're broken in pieces, that they're shattered or crushed. And Jesus, he's saying it comes to those who are squashed by life's circumstances, those who, who can see no way out, who, who find that living itself can be oppression, and that Jesus comes to bring freedom. I don't know if you noticed, but all these groups are reached the same way. Did you catch the theme? The vehicle for ministry, he says, is preaching. Preaching is proclaiming. Since Jesus came to proclaim good news, to proclaim liberty, to proclaim the year. And that's what a prophet does. He proclaims, he preaches good news. See, the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is an announcement. Every other religion, though, shares good advice. Work you can do, ways you should live, things you must accomplish. See, that's, that's advice. But the gospel is not advice. It's what God has done through Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus here proclaims the first step of what he will do on earth. And he proclaims himself as the anointed one to come. And then after reading this passage, Jesus sits down to preach. And it's the shortest and most powerful sermon that you will hear this morning. It says in verse 21, and he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what a powerful statement that is. That's a mic drop right there, right? Today, not in Isaiah's day, but now. And this scripture, the announcement of God's salvation promised long ago, the words that have been studied and read by you for years, that has been fulfilled. It's been completed. It's been brought to pass. It's come true in your hearing, right in front of you. You, you see and you hear right now. And Jesus is declaring to them, I am the one you've been waiting for. He is the Messiah. And can you imagine the exhilaration of hearing that the Savior explain his mission and declare, I'm here? And what is the response? Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him 
and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They, they were captivated by grace and mercy of his words. They were in wonder of his speech. But it didn't go any further than that. The crowd was wowed, but not changed. See, Jesus could draw a crowd, but crowds for a preacher are, are very unimportant. If drawing and impressing a crowd is what Jesus was looking for, he could do it. But it wouldn't bring any fruit. Jesus wouldn't be impressed with their flattery. See, Jesus was never interested in big religious crowds. He would have one eventually, and they would crucify him. Now, Jesus wants disciples, not crowds. And it's important to remember in this that he's preaching to his hometown. These people that he's gathered with saw him grow up. They, they know his family. And, and Jesus reads a description of the Messiah from the prophecy of Isaiah, and he says, I'm here. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And they've known Jesus since he was a little boy. They know that he's a nice boy, a, a gracious man. But their admiration quickly turned to cynicism because they questioned then in verse 22, is not this Joseph's son? See, in that, they miss the fulfillment of scriptures. And all they see is the hometown boy. This, this guy, he's a good guy. Jesus hadn't sinned. He, he was a good, he could be trusted. And they're entertained by his words, even emotionally moved, but ultimately they're unaffected by the message. Because they didn't truly see themselves in the descriptions, and frankly, they didn't want to. So that leaves to my last point, his rejection. In verse 23, he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus was the Messiah who would bring the great salvation that was promised long ago to God's people. And the people enjoy the reading of the scripture. They're enthused even with the sermon, but they don't see the Savior. They think that Jesus is a nice preacher. He's a nice guy. But they're too familiar with him to truly listen. They hear his words but refuse to believe them. And what we learn from that, sometimes the truth is hidden in plain sight. Sometimes the familiar hides the fantastic. See, their question of Jesus might seem innocent, but Jesus sees below the surface and knows it's a fundamental rejection of his mission and his ministry. He has come to proclaim good news to the poor and to restore sight to the blind, and, and they ignore that he's talking about them. And they expect that they have a right to his blessing because they're from his hometown. We're buddies, Jesus. And the proverb here indicates that Jesus understood the people to be expecting a demonstration of his extraordinary work reported in, in other cities and other towns in Capernaum. But the people's proximity and casualness tended to be privileges that blinded them. See, being casual with Jesus is why a lot of people don't recognize him as their savior. 
as their Messiah. They, they've had enough Bible to make them think they know everything about Jesus. They're familiar with the stories, and they quote Proverbs, and they would never miss Easter or Christmas service, but they've become familiar with Jesus without ever meeting him. Charles Spurgeon preached this passage to his church in June of 1867, and he warned his congregation, so I'll read the quote and warn you today. He says, I'm afraid that some of you know the gospel so well that for this very reason it has lost much of its power with you. For it is well known as thrice told tale. If you heard it for the first time, its very novelty would strike you, but such interest you cannot now feel. Are you casual with Jesus? Feel you're, you're good with him? You attend church, go to science school. In fact, you've gone your whole life. You've served in various ministries. You never miss church on Christmas. All of that doesn't mean you're a Christian. Christians know Jesus. They love Jesus. They trust in him for salvation. They don't trust in their attendance. They don't trust in their Bible knowledge. The scriptures say there will be a lot of people who will give Jesus their spiritual resume in that last day. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, you need to be certain you recognize Jesus for who he truly is. And to my non-Christian friends that are here this morning or logged on or even next door in the chapel, don't look to Jesus to do tricks to satisfy your unbelief. You are called to take him at his word, to believe his teaching, to trust in him. And in his word, he reveals himself. And so, friends, you need to dive into the Bible and to read and ask questions of it and encourage you to find a Christian a Christian you know, and ask them to read the Bible with you and ask questions. Don't reject Christ, or he may reject you in the end. Look deeply at his word and read it and believe it. Jesus continues, he says, in verse 24, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus knew human nature, that people who knew him, who had seen him carrying out mundane tasks for years in town, building things, getting water at the well for his family, taking care of them, rubbing shoulders with other townspeople in the marketplace, worshiping with them in the synagogue, that they would not believe his claim to be the Messiah. And so he reminds them that a prophet is never without honor except in his hometown. To them, Jesus was just another guy. They, they were too familiar with him. They assumed they knew all about him. And friends, don't miss the opportunity to take stock of your assumptions of Jesus. If you are comfortable with Jesus, then you might not know the Jesus from the Bible. 
These folks didn't know Jesus. They instead wanted a sign to prove what he was saying. For them, he needed to work a miracle for them to believe. See, casualness breeds contempt, and to them, Jesus would always just be Joseph's son. Nothing more. After these words, Jesus gives a peop- the people a very important warning. He's not done preaching, and he goes right after the heart of the matter, which was their spiritual self-sufficiency and pride. See, pride will blind people. Pride, by its very nature, confuses people. Pride causes us to not understand even the most simplest of things. And pride indicates ignorance. Jesus says in verse 25, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus is reminding them that God chose a widow to be blessed by the ministry of Elijah. He chose a woman of Sidon, not a Jew, but a Gentile, a pagan Gentile. The story is recorded in 1 Kings 17 and tells about how Elijah encountered a woman gathering sticks to kindle a fire so she could bake a meal for her son and herself, and as she put it, so that we, we, we would eat and die. She knew what was going to happen. And then Elijah's response was surprising. He says to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make, a li- make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And amazingly, this pagan Gentile, this starving woman, obeyed Elijah's strange words, and for as long as the famine endured, she had flour and oil. Why did she trust Elijah? See, if she had been like the people of Nazareth that Saturday in the synagogue, she would have demanded a miracle first. And perhaps if she had a barrel full of flour when she met Elijah, she might have put her faith in the barrel rather than God. See, her blessing was that she was desperately poor, and she knew it. She saw herself rightly. She understood herself. And the application to this congregation of Nazareth was obvious. If they wanted evidence that Jesus' claims to the poor, the blind, the captives, the oppressed were true, all they had to do was trust him, and there would be ample evidence. Of course, that was the problem. Because in their own eyes, they're not poor. They're good, respectable synagogue-attending, family-oriented, solid citizens of Nazareth. And the comparison with this Gentile woman in Elijah's day was a massive insult. How dare Jesus think so poorly of them? Then he continues. He's not done. He gives the illustration of Elisha, the prophet, who didn't heal the lepers in Israel, but heals a Syrian Gentile. See, if they weren't offended enough, he shares a story. 
And Naaman, Naaman was a commander of the Syrian army and was sent by the king of Syria to be cured of leprosy. And upon Naaman's arrival to Elisha, Elisha sent a messenger instructing him to go wash seven times in the Jordan and he would be cleansed. But see, if you remember the story, Naaman in 2 Kings is angry. And he went away and he says, behold, I thought that, that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure me. And he says, I've got good rivers here. Why wouldn't he just tell me to go there? And so he turns around and, and, and wants to leave in rage. But then his, his servants come and convince him, arguing that if he had been asked to do a great thing, something he could have been proud of, he would have done it. So why not do the humiliating thing and be cured? Why not humble yourself? All he needed to do was trust in God's word through the prophet and he would be healed. So what does he do? He, he does. 2 Kings 5, 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. You remember that I said this a few weeks ago, I think, but Luke's gospel was written to communicate the life of Christ and his benefits to a Gentile world. And his writing contains more of Jesus' statements about reaching out to Gentiles than any other gospel writer. And here he's calling to their attention God's mercy to the outsiders. And these fine citizens, these upstanding church attenders had had enough. It's bad enough to be told that they were poor and blind and captive and oppressed but now to be told that they were much less spiritual and less wise than Gentiles, well, that was just too much. See, Jesus is saying God's salvation passed over Israel and went to the unclean Gentiles. Israel had rejected their prophets, but the Gentiles received them and were saved. And in that, he's saying God's salvation is for all nations to go out into the world. It's for everyone who will receive Jesus Christ as their Lord. And God. And with both of these stories here, he's recounting, Jesus is, is calling the people of Nazareth to faith. And the same is for you this morning. If you want to receive eternal life, you need to believe the promise of the gospel. God does not take us to heaven first and then ask us if we want to go there. Instead, he invites us to simply believe in Christ instead of ourselves promising that when we do, we will be saved forever. We need to believe to see it. But the people here in Nazareth refuse. They reject Jesus. These are his friends, his neighbors, people closest to him. They've watched him grow up in front of them for 30 years. And what do they do in response? I mean, they don't even wait to the end of the service. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. 
They're so angry at Jesus' words, they cast him out of the synagogue and they want to end his life. This is the stone that the builders rejected. Jesus came to his own and his own would not receive him. When Jesus cuts through their religious facade, they want to kill him. But Luke says in verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. From what I can tell in my research, Jesus never steps foot in Nazareth again. This was his hometown. This was people that knew him. And what we learn from that, friends, is some rejections are final. And this should be sobering for us this morning. And I'm not trying to be sensational here, but this may be the last time you hear a sermon. This may be the last time you hear the words of Christ. So what will you do with it? See, the people in Nazareth lost their opportunity. Actually, they wasted it. Rather than trusting in God in faith, they demanded more evidence. If Jesus preached in our church, would we marvel at the power and grace of his speech and ignore the call upon our lives to trust in him? Would our souls be thrilled and wowed and look past our need for him? Would we hang on his every word? Or would we be so angry that we'd want to toss him off a cliff? Would he be accepted or rejected by you? I believe this section of Luke 4 compels us to consider if we're like the people in a synagogue who miss Jesus, who are too casual with him. And friends, perhaps you were raised in the church and you know the rituals. You know the language, you know the culture of the church, but perhaps you don't know Jesus. I, I believe Jesus' sermon was aimed at nominal believers, people who assume they are God's people but have no living, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And his application to them and to us this morning is that you can miss God's salvation if you fail to recognize who Jesus is. Perhaps you've not thought as Jesus is necessary to your salvation and forgiveness with God. Perhaps you've not thought of him as the one who provides you righteousness and pays the penalty for your sin. Well, today, friend, is the day of salvation. Today, this salvation is preached in your hearing just as it was then. And I ask for you to believe on the Lord Jesus, to trust in him alone, to repent of your sin, repent of trusting in yourself, and come to him in faith, and you will be saved. You would not miss the salvation that he brings. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had this morning to gather and to worship you. Father, we do pray for those that are in our midst or that are watching online that have never turned to you in faith. Perhaps they're very familiar with God and with Jesus and the church. Perhaps they've even read the Bible a lot. But they have no relationship with you. God, I ask that you would break through with the power of your spirit to give them faith to believe and to trust in you. That they would see the the heaviness of Jesus' words. That they would turn from their, their trusting of themselves or trusting of their spiritual resume of, of how well they've lived or how they were raised or the school they went to or the job they have. They would turn from trusting in that, God, and turn to trust in you alone. And I also pray, God, that as your church, we would be faithful in the proclamation of the gospel to family that we love, to friends, to neighbors and coworkers. May we make much of Jesus this week. May we not be ashamed, but go boldly to share the gospel with those that you bring in our midst. And it's for his honor and glory alone we pray. Amen.